today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about, uh, well, a number of things that we've been talking about for the last uh, couple of years now because of the pandemic and lockdowns, etc. And that's economic recovery. And uh, there are some brilliant minds who are getting together right now to talk about uh, what's going to be happening globally. Uh, and of course, uh, folks from all over the world are going to be attending. Uh, it's called the World Economic Forum and uh, a great uh, exchange of ideas. Uh, joining us to talk about what might come out of this is uh, Moshe Lander. Moshe, of course, is a, a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm not in Davos, but uh, I'll, I'll do what I can to help you from here. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your bravery on this, okay? Because, I mean, you and I are going to talk about the World Economic Forum, and we do this at the risk of incurring the wrath of Pierre Polyev, who doesn't think this is a useful organization at all, and they have a hidden agenda. So, you know, keep that in mind, and uh, we'll have you back on that if anything comes of it, okay? So let, let's good. talk about this. Uh, and by the way, we should mention that uh, Stephen Harper has addressed this committee uh, in the past. He's spoken at it. Uh, John Baird, a number of uh, politicians have always done this. It's, 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 it's a conversation, uh, almost like a think tank of world leaders to find out how we're going to get out of this. Is that, a, 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 if, a, if not simplistic, at least an accurate representation? Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's grown. So it's something that started off uh, very small in its early days, and it increasingly draws people from current public policy, but also past public policy as well. So people who have experience with previous crises are, are brought in to help try and advise those that are currently the ones that have to lead our way through crises. Uh, and this is one of those years where they don't have to think too hard about what's on the agenda, because we've been talking about it for the last two and a half years, haven't we? All the problems that we've incurred because of the pandemic and, and the results, the aftershock sort of. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing with COVID uh, that you and I have discussed multiple times is that, you know, COVID, because of these waves, they've come exactly as waves would come on the ocean, that it, it affects one part of the world and when it crests in one part of the world it's just starting a new wave in a different part of the world so we're all trying to figure out our way out of covid but we're not figuring our way out from the same starting point or the same ending point so these ripple effects uh are, are causing all of us to kind of start from different angles and to approach it in different ways well does if that circumstance exists i i agree with you totally that it does uh, how do you how do you find consensus on stuff? Because as you say, uh, what's happening in Europe uh, may not be the same as what's happening in North America, and in fact, it isn't. Uh, so how do you say, okay, here's here's our plan going forward? Because it's 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 sometimes an apples and oranges oranges comparison, isn't it? It, it is, and, and so where that could be a challenge, uh, I guess my eternal optimism, I, I try and see that <laughs> as as uh, potential here, right? That what that allows, if nothing else, is for experimentation. And I think one of the things that you know some politicians that you previously named uh, might have a problem with is that you know when they look at these experts, they assume that the experts have the answers, and it's too simplistic to assume that experts have an answer to something that hasn't been experienced in 100 years and in a very different world than the one that experienced it 100 years ago. So, you know, the positive that comes out of this is that the the exchange that exists between the great and good of policy is that they get to say, we tried this, it worked. We tried this, it didn't work. And somebody can say, well, we tried the thing that you said worked, but it didn't work here. And, you know, they can start to try and figure out that what are the various characteristics that need to be present for certain policies to work? Or what are the certain characteristics that are going to make it so that policies don't work? And that actually could speed up our exit from COVID 
because we're allowed to try and experiment on uh, individual country levels or individual provincial levels or regional levels. I'm reminded of that great Bill Withers song from years ago, Lean on Me. You know, I might just have a problem that you understand. Uh, and, and in the absence of that dialogue, uh, you're going to run into it and say, okay, here's our policy. And, the, you know, all of a sudden you have to take a left turn. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. As opposed to somebody who could say, you know, I did that last year, and here's what you have to expect, and here's what you have to be watching for. Uh, that, that's really what this is all about, isn't it? And that's exactly it. And so in a certain level, it, it almost kind of creates a, an element of competition, right? That because politicians want to be the ones to to lead their citizens out of this or to, to at least take claim for leading their citizens out of it, that, that element of competition is a, is a great driver for innovation and experimentation. That's the type of thing then that can take a bad situation and, and end it a lot quicker than if we had some sort of top-down dictatorial policy that, you know, one size fit all that everybody has to use. And so I, I, I see that the exchange that goes on in Davos is a great, great opportunity here and something that we should be encouraging rather than disparaging the people that go there and, and want to learn from others and, and admit that they don't have the answers and, and want to try and find out what's the, the path of least resistance to, to get us to safety. No, I guess one of the best examples of that, I know it's one of the issues they're going to talk about extensively, is uh, is is the, the food crisis that we have right now. Uh, and it's impacting different parts of the world in different ways. I mean, you know, we're experiencing it here in North America, certainly. Uh, and there's some discussion going on with the federal government about how we maybe we can help out with you know, our, our Western grain production. Uh, but there are other countries, especially some of the European nations, I guess, are going to say, look, we got nothing. Uh, you know, we rely on Ukraine for that, and the Russians are holding up. They're not letting them ship anything out, uh, and they're you know, they're worried about the long term benefits. So, you know, you want to get those two sides together, I guess, and find out if they, hey, can you help me with this? Because this is a crisis right now. Yeah, and, and and that's a great example, Bill. Because you know, one of the things that I'm I'm constantly uh, promoting as an economist, as an expert, is the the key to make sure that we remain open to trade. And trade is not just physical goods, it's services, it's ideas, it's people. Uh, and that's what makes all of us stronger. And so when you take a look at food security issues that have arisen in the past, usually because of things like drought or war, one mm -hmm. of the greatest mistakes that countries make is they close their borders. They try and say that food security is one of those exceptions to the rule. And we have to make sure that we take care of ours first and we're not going to accept imports from others or we're not going to export to others and we don't want to share. And that traditionally has exacerbated uh, a dangerous situation. It increases the likelihood of war, it increases the likelihood of conflict, and it increases the likelihood that uh, a food uh, insecurity situation is going to be made worse. So I, I think that if they're exchanging ideas, hopefully they're understanding as well that they need to make sure that they try and find a way to exchange food and, and share out some of that security uh, to, to the benefit of everybody rather than the, the narrow interest of a few and, and the instability of the rest. Well, and, and the few, I guess we have to include the Russians in that too, because they, the, going back to the grain situation, they're hoarding theirs this year. They're not trading with other countries. Uh, and not only that, but I was mentioned just a second ago, and they're not letting the stuff out of Ukraine. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're, I guess, overwhelmed by the, the horror of war going on there. But uh, Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of, of Europe. And, you know, there's a lot of countries in the world that rely on that. And that stuff's not getting out, too. And the Russians aren't putting their stuff out there right now. Uh, ergo, we've got a crisis going on in a whole lot of countries. Yeah. And, and you know, that 
sort of insecurity that comes out of it is is making a bad situation in Europe worse. And, and that's exactly it. it. It's rippling out around the world. And, you know, what ends up happening now is that countries are going to say, well, to make sure that this doesn't happen again, uh, we need to investigate our own domestic farm policies. And so what could end up happening then is these misguided ideas that more support needs to be given to local farmers or that farmers right now that are producing certain types of crops need to reallocate their limited farmland towards other types of crops. And so what would happen then is that we're going to start to see other markets get distorted as well. So where the grain market is already messed up, these other markets start to take on the the problems of the grain market. And we're going to see then that other uh, commodities get caught up in this and, and these prices then are going to you know, start skyrocketing in, in other industries. And that's the type of thing then that once you put those policies in place, uh, the limited group of people that benefit from it are going to fight to the nail when you try and remove it when things go back to normal. And so it, it's the type of thing that short-term benefit maybe, but long-term damage, huge and for sure. One of the other things that can come out of here, and has in the past, of course, are projections about what's going to happen. Uh, and, and Pat Gelsinger, who's uh, attending, he's the CEO for Intel, one of them anyway, uh, one of the, the sides of Intel, uh, talk about the chip shortage, which, which is something that has crippled so many parts of our economy right now. You know, we can't build cars, can't build computers without chips. Uh, and we want this to be over yet tomorrow, I guess. We actually probably want it to be over yesterday. But he's suggesting it's going to be at least another year, maybe a year and a half before we find that that, that sense of normal once again. Uh, I, that may not be in the news we want to hear, but it's pretty much the news we have to hear, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think that sometimes, you know, hearing the bad news is, is half the, the battle, right? <laughs> Accepting it is the other half, I guess. But yeah, listen, the, this this is not going to end uh, just because, you know, mask requirements are being lifted or uh, that we're now saying that we're moving to a post-COVID world. Uh, th there was two years of a lot of damage that was done to the economy. And there were a lot of businesses that were propped up that probably didn't have a viable business model even if COVID hadn't existed. So, you know, part of getting to that new normal is finding that new sort of stability, that new equilibrium. And, and, and that's going to take time. And when you add to it uh, all of these other global issues and throw in climate change, if you need something else to, to keep you up at night, uh, rising interest rates, oncoming recessions, monkeypox, like there's so many things that to try and find your balance in this is not going to be something that we can hope to do within three weeks or three months. And so if, if somebody told me that, we'll have it fixed in a year, I'd be thrilled that we could get all of that done within a year. Well, and, and the, I, I'd rather have the realistic approach. And like I say, I, I, that's what you guys as economists talk about, and that's what we need to hear. Uh, because we've talked, uh, of course, on previous programs about some of the industries that are having trouble, but some of them are bouncing back quite nicely. And one of those is the airline industry. That's great news. Everybody wants to travel now because we haven't been able to do it. Uh, but when they, they look at that and say, that's great that so many people are lining up to get on airplanes, but this now there's a fuel crisis because of the rising price of oil. And the other thing that came up at the meeting, I guess, over here in Davos is, uh, yeah, a lot of these airlines are putting people on planes right now, but they are hugely in debt. And a lot of that is government loans and uh, governments tend to want to get their money back. So th these guys have got some long term challenges, too, don't they? Absolutely. And so if you take a look before uh, COVID, the airline industry was one of those things that popped up every once in a while as being in a lot of trouble, right? It, it's an industry yeah. that 
was seeing a lot of rationalization uh, of companies that desperately needed to merge their way to, to get those economies of scale. And, you know, the, the thing with the aviation industry is that it's very nationalistic. Uh, how many uh, industry, how many different uh, companies have their country's name attached to their plane, right? You know, Air Canada and back in the days of Canadair and, you know, the, the or Canadian Airlines. Um, you know, w- when you go to a country and say, your aviation company kind of stinks and they should merge with this country's aviation. It, it creates nationalism. And it's the type of thing that creates barriers to entry that's going to slow down uh, the ability of the aviation industry to really bounce back in a strong and viable way. Uh, and so these are the types of things then that, you know, is just one more problem for an industry that really got hammered hard. I, I know crystal balling can be very difficult in a situation like this, as you mentioned, because there's so many variables uh, in this. But one of the questions a lot of economists have been asking is uh, when you look at the fuel prices and, and you look at access to food and so many of these other things, Moshe, are we heading to a global recession? Uh, and, and I know the outlook isn't brilliant, uh, but uh, you're a glasses half full kind of guy. Are you still feeling that way about this, the, the, the big picture here? So... What I'd say to that is that, you know, when we talk about a recession, we talk about the the technical definition, right? It always comes up in an article. It always comes up in, in an interview, right? Two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. The, yep. the global economy is not going to experience declining GDP in part because it doesn't have a one-size-fits-all business cycle, right? So the, the, what we're probably going to see is that the, the growth rate is going to slow in a way that feels like an economic slowdown. And I guess the, the kind of best, worst analogy I could give is anybody who's gotten off the 401 driving 120 kilometers an hour and pulls into the off-ramp at 50 kilometers an hour, it feels like you've ground to a halt. It's why you know we often race at like 80, 90 kilometers uh, mm-hmm. into town. Um, we're, we're going beyond the speed limit, but we're going slower than we were on the highway. So I think what you're going to find is that the global economy is going to slow from what it felt before COVID to something that is still positive, but not as positive as it was. And so it's going to feel like a slowdown. I, I definitely think we're heading that way, but I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing either. It's uh, going to be a fascinating uh, forum and uh, interesting to see just what they're going to be saying coming out of it. Moshe, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Anytime. Take care. Moshe Lander, who's a senior economist and a lecturer, of course, at Concordia University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.